And welcome back to the Book and Life podcast. Today we're going to have a brand new book guest on. Whether they're an author, an editor, a producer, you'll never quite know. So you're in for one hell of a ride. But today I just have to uh, do the adverts and then I'll get us straight into that most important conversation. And as as we do every week, um, I'm going to read The Shadow which is part of the Time Guardian series, and this is book four from Marianne Curley. The battle is over, the war is won. The prophecy complete, but life can't just pick up where it left off for Ethan, struggling to cope with tragic loss. At odds with friends in the guard, he finds himself adrift, jumping in shadows and sensing someone who can't possibly be there. Blaming herself for the goddess Athena's death, Desalswear's revenge to fullify the immortal's plan for world domination, but Giselle hadn't planned on love, and that leaves her with an unbearable choice. Should she follow her heart or the strings of a goddess short on praise but high on expectation? Who continues to pull her from the grave? As the guard and the order battles through the past and into an impossible future, darkness looks round every corner. The fight for the world's survival rests with just one. Is it friend or foe who stands in the shadow? And just a reminder that The Price of Freedom by Rosemary Aiken, sorry, Rosemary Rowan, um, is being donated to the Ukraine cri- refugee crisis. And here's the blurb for her book. It's uh, one of her Roman British crime series, which was written under her maiden name. All editions can be found online where all books are sold, even her agents donating her commission. Sorry, I don't have the blurb for that, but uh, that's that's what she's doing. And now, without further ado, let's get you to the guests. So, uh, guys, I promised you the next most amazing author that I could find, and it's a historical writer. And she's right up there with how much I adored Tracy Rees, who was on fairly recently. So, I am excited to share this book with you. I have gotten into a World War II phenomenon lately, as you all know. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to best-selling and incredibly intelligent writer, Annie Murray. I got that right, though, right? Was it Annie? Annie, yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm not sure about the rest, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I honestly, I looked at your work, and I had just done Tracy Rees. And I had, I just adored her elopement. It was it was amazing. I, I just fell in love with it. And I was so excited. I was like, I really want to... She got me in that kind of frame of, I want another good historical... <laughs> yeah and I was yeah. like oh and then just your name popped up in a conversation and they're like oh would you want to talk to Annie oh yeah like oh, bring okay. bring me bring me in for this one <laughs> I, I'm ex- I was so excited I think I really bit her hand up it's like can I have a copy of the book <laughs> um so yeah and if everyone knows that there'll be spotlights throughout the year which I do which are reviews of the books so I'm excited to have your your book on that list uh oh, yeah. of books that I will be doing reviews on i just i just couldn't 
believe I got so lucky as to have yours come up. So I guess what we'll do is, um, would you like to tell us a little bit about the book that you just released, or is just about to release, I should say, and uh, a little bit about what inspired you to write it? Sure, sure. Um, well, this book is due out in paperback on the 13th of April. It's, it's out in hardback already, <clears throat> and it's called Wartime for the Chocolate Girls. It's actually the second in a trilogy. I have to explain this because there's been a whole load of confusion around these books and I'd like to just say this now. Okay. <laughs> so this is part of a trilogy and the first volume came out last year, which is called Secrets of the Chocolate Girls. Okay, I'll talk about the book in a minute, but I just want to say about 20 years ago, I wrote a book called Chocolate Girls. And it has a sequel called The Bells of Bourneville Green. Now, those two books are... Two stories which follow on, the bells follows on from the first one. They're separate. The story finishes there. I began this trilogy with a completely different set of characters and my goodness, people are confused. And of course, it's the titles and there have been various kind of mistakes online with it as well. So if you're if you're a reader and you've already read The Bells of Bourneville Green, this does not follow on. <laughs> this is a new trilogy. OK, but what it does follow on from is Secrets of the Chocolate Girls. OK. So I used to live, um, when I was living in Birmingham, I've been writing about the city of Birmingham for many years. Um, I lived about a mile away from the Cadbury factory, which is, you know, it's an iconic business anyway in the country, but certainly for Birmingham it really is. And I thought at the time, well, wow, you know, I could actually smell the chocolate in my garden sometimes because they say it's, you know, you know the weather by whether you can smell the chocolate sort of thing. <clears throat> so I must write about this. And for honestly, several years, I couldn't think of anything to write about it because I'd met people who worked at Cadbury's. I'd worked at the local hospital in Selly Oak, for example, and quite a lot of our patients at that time were ex-Cadbury. I was nursing men, but their wives would come in clutching these bags of misshaped chocolates because they had the, they, uh, all workers, whether they were still there or not, had the right to go to the, the kind of reject shop and get all this chocolate and they would talk about working at Cadbury's and basically they just hadn't got anything bad to say about it so that is not a story <laughs> no <laughs> you know no, where's the story there it's wonderful that is not really a story so I sort of shelved the idea for some time and then I started um I can't I can't remember where it's a long time ago now but I realized that there were all these because the Cadbury family were Quakers and that was very central to how they ran their business but also, um, during the Second World War and just before, the Quakers particularly, and, and, and still now actually, had a particular kind of um, empathy, let's say, with refugees. Yeah. And so in the 1930s, they were a lot of people were helping refu Jewish refugees coming out of Europe. And I started to find this kind of link of a, a story that took off from there. Uh, and, and then, you know, I didn't even intend to write a second book, actually, but then the, the story seemed to want another volume so a couple of years later I wrote that one scroll forward I mean you know 15 20 years something like that I was staying in that area a lot I know the area very well and in the meantime I'd also become a Quaker myself so I got more interested in that side of the history really and luckily it was just actually before the pandemic struck us all because I couldn't go anywhere else to find out any information so it was a good choice for that for that time yeah so I decided to introduce the Gilby family which is so this this three volume story is about this family and their um 
Their experiences of the war, the whole, the three generations who work at the Cadbury factory, but also just they're a complex family. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> There's a lot going on in this family. And, and you know, that, that whole thing about in this era, we're talking the 1940s and 50s, so many things were kept behind closed doors, which wouldn't be now. And behind closed doors is where I like to take a look, really. Of course. And that's that's where the best stories are. Of course. I mean, yes. I remember being tiny, like a little girl, and my, my mother and father drove a rather large camper van down to the Capri Chocolate Factory. Oh, really? And uh, we did the whole tour, because remember they did the tour with the rides and the, you know. Well, they've done it for years, actually, long before Cadbury World, which is very modern and sort of cartoony, but they always did do tours. Yeah, and and that's how I kind of got really taken in by it, was just the, my mum had this love of chocolate, and she drove us all crazy for years about, like, she would just come home with tons of it. And I couldn't stand sweet stuff. I was not a sweet tooth girl. And I was just like, jeez. Every Christmas just getting force-fed chocolate, you know. Sounds great. (laughs) Um, Oh, no, I hate it. I was like this pickled onion kind of girl. Like, I liked all the the bitter stuff and, you know, zombie stuff. And so, yeah, Cadbury's was kind of like this huge influence on my family. And so, yeah, we... Every time we went on holiday, we had to do the, the factory tour. And my dad hated it, too. He That's really strange. <laughs> so we used to park up and we would do it. And the reason my dad hated it was my brother was lactose intolerant. Yeah, um, that doesn't help, for sure. Yes. So, yeah, you had, you had one child who didn't like sweet things. You had one another child who couldn't things. eat any of it. <laughs> and my mom, who would just go there for, I think, the, the fact that she she always saw it on TV. Um, and I think that's back in the days where, you know, when you were little kids, you were raised to watch the soap operas every night. It was like a religious kind mm-hmm. of thing where, oh, seven o'clock, Emmerdale. You right, know, it was like right. that kind of religiousness of you were set in front of the TV with your hot cup of tea and your toast, and you were told, next two hours, I don't want to hear about you. You know, that was... I should have tried that with mine. <laughs> it was, it was like, because in Shetland there was not much for kids to do when no. they were my age. No. Um, Are you so in Shetland yeah, now? Are you in Shetland? I left uh, a couple of years back because I'd moved oh, back to spend time with them and then I, I came back down the road. But Shetland had always been kind of like the driving force. Um, mm-hmm. I think I have of, been of there. I did. You went on holiday there a few years ago, which is, wasn't my idea. I have to say, but it was very interesting. <laughs> it is. It's a very interesting place, and they're very much set on routines and schedules. Right. And I think everybody sort of saw luxuries as getting the Cadbury sweetie box. Oh. At Christmas time, like that big sweetie box thing, mm-hmm. and I would try and avoid it like the plague. Just give me Particularly some if my ones. my grandmother was around, because <laughs> I was yeah. I was like this teeny tiny girl, like I weighed next to nothing. So they would they would constantly try and feed me, so I would try and hide in every possible place I could come up. With. That is very strange. I, I just didn't that before. No, well, well. <laughs> so yeah, but that's what that's what really kind of made me excited about reading your book because I was like, that's something I know, and I knew that the Cadbury's thing was going on in the war and 
the great thing about Shetland is stories are shared around the fireplace. Mm-hmm. And every home's got a fireplace. Pretty much every yeah. home's got a fireplace. I'm not surprised. Or a TV. Yes. It's either TV or the fireplace. And my grandmother talked about how, you know, lots of the family depended on the chocolate, especially during the dark winters, as a way of keeping them going. Because them. it would tie them over when oh, they were waiting Yes, for I food. had no idea of that. Yeah. Yeah. And they had mm. a huge impact. And the great thing with Shetland was they had refugees coming in because they were going over to Norway and Denmark right. and Finland and they were rescuing people. Um, you know, and then sort of the government took over their little rescue mission plan and sort of used it for their own devices. Um, but for Shetlanders, it was it was the only thing they could do. You know, they could... Sure, yeah. They were giving home to Norwegians. And uh, Nor- Norway plays a huge huge impact of role in, in the islands today um but yeah one of the things that was traded the most often was chocolate because mm-hmm. it was the one thing that they knew they could get from the sort of aberdeen up to shetland and it wouldn't go off yes and it was also the only yes. thing they couldn't make themselves so they were farming they were fishing they were providing food for the community whatever way they could and most of the time it was women going out rowing boats into the north sea which was never a safe idea not true and (laughs) bringing back these these falls and you know they took over the farming i mean i don't believe that there was anybody from south that came up to help the farming but Mm. a lot of the men who were not at sea would farm uh religiously uh Mm. to try and help help the community and if you weren't doing that you were you know doing electrical wiring or building bridges or you know helping any way you could um so i knew of the history with cadbury's and the islands for a very long time so when i saw your book i'm like oh can't wait to dive into this because it's almost like a little nugget extra of what i already know i get to kind of expand on that world a little bit and I must admit, I, I did wonder yes. about the connections prior, because I did research you before coming on, and I'm like, she started this series, or is this something, and I must admit, yeah. I was going to have to ask you that question, because I was like, this doesn't, I'm pretty sure I'm reading this wrong, and and I thought, I can't really ask the publisher, so I'll wait till she comes on, and then I'll ask yeah. her. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm having to explain it over and over again, it's partly my own fault, but then it's just, it's simple, really, there's two books, and then there's three books, <laughs> but, you know, I know I, I what I think it's the doing. title, to be, to be honest. The title. Yeah, I just, I just... Really most readers, when they pick up books, and I've discovered this, because I did a series, and I gave them all their own individual books, and then I tried to link them all together. Right. Not right. thinking... I should put the series title with the title of the individual s- stories. That yeah. was my mistake. Well, you live because readers get easily confused. <laughs> because we most readers don't research the people they're reading. No, so, no. you know, if you pick up a book and it says, you know, Chocolate Girls, you're instantly going to think Cadbury's because if you're British anyway, you know, you think Cadbury's, and then yeah. of course anybody who knows you will instantly think back to what you've done before um so yeah yeah well there we are <laughs> well i mean it's, it's a good look it's a good experience um yes 
you yes. know, you get to learn from it and you can pass it on to other people and be like, hey, don't do what I did. <laughs> don't do what I did. And I think also, if, you know, if you plan to write a series of five books, then then you know that's what's happening. I didn't actually plan to do that. So that's partly why this came out. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> never mind. So for, for you, what was the best moment of writing this? Was there a moment that you think, yeah, that was the best moment? And what was your hardest moment writing this? Gosh, that's a really tough question. Um, there are, there's always sort of hard moments when I'm not a terribly good planner. I nearly always have a kind of overall sense of, I think it's really important to have an overall sense of where this is going, particularly in terms of timing. You know, oh, I'm always okay. saying this, but I've written books, I've written a lot of books, and some of them cover sort of 20 or 30 years, and some of them cover less than a year. This particular one is um, covers sort of five years. So... I'm actually try, trying to sort of distinguish because I've now just written the third one. So they're all in a bit of a pickle in my head. I'm just trying to remember which is which. But um, this one, the first one covers 1940 to 41. And this goes from 41 through to 46. Right. So, you know, it's that thing. Oops, sorry. It's that thing of planning out the scope so that you don't kind of write far too much in one year and then you've got no time left sort of thing. Um, I think I'm just trying to remember. That's actually quite a hard question. I'm just trying to think what the the hard bits were. There's usually some point in it. Yes, I know what <laughs> I know. What was particularly hard with this one? This family has has quite complex situations. I don't want to give the plot away, but there's quite a lot in it where people are in difficulties which are not publicly known, but they somehow right. have to get through them. You know, and I I literally had a, a, a moment in the minute where I thought, how are we going to get out of this one? Yep. <laughs> No, I've been what there. are they actually going to do here? Because this is this is a really really tricky situation, and I don't know what we're doing. So I had to sort of feel my way through literally that kind of sense. Well, what would I do? What would you know? You want it to be realistic. You want it to kind of be felt through. And I think I often have to literally kind of feel through chapter by chapter till I till I resolve some things. Other things I sort of know where it's going. Um, so that that was a bit of a tricky moment. <laughs> Because, you know, if I don't know, nobody else does. And that's, you know, I'm supposed to be in charge of this thing. Um, I mean, there were quite a lot of good moments in this, actually, because particularly towards the end, I think. Um, but I think there was a good moment in, I could even name the chapter, I think it's chapter five, where I suddenly realised, oh, hang on a minute. Yes, now this is going to happen. Now this is going to be good. <laughs> you know, somebody's going yeah. to kind of, you know, pitch a ball into the middle of the action here that, I hadn't even quite known what was going to happen. And we're like, oh, right, this is really going to set things off. So that's that's one thing. I mean, there's 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 a lot going on. It's the whole of the war. It's not actually so much during the Blitz, this. But, you know, you've got a family with three children and grandparents. They're all, they've all got their thing going on. Um, I'm, I'm just trying not to not away. It's difficult to talk about without just telling you exactly what's happening. But um... See, I, I find that myself, like when I sit and do media, because I often have this issue of writing myself into a corner. Yes. Um, yeah. And luckily, do you write when I sort of, what kind of thing do you write? I write romance um, originally, and then I sort of branched out since then. But with my my co-author in the series that we're redoing at the moment, um, I have this awful habit of writing myself right off the cliff, <laughs> and he will he always sort of reads the chapter behind where I'm at. And he'll go, no, rein it in. Where, really where are you going? Like, yeah, yeah. How yeah. do you, you know? And I, and I, I will phone him, and I'll be like, I've written this great thing, but I yeah. can't get out of it. 
Yes. Yeah. We'll, and we'll he'll be like, yeah, let's ditch that idea or let's put a pin in that and we'll come back to it. Um, and I, I couldn't, because our, our book is, you know, our series is um, twin sisters. So you're following these twins and you've got diary entries and you've got all these other people that their actions then impact. And then you've Boom. got levels of secrecy and you've got you know, all these suspicious things happens as well. And he'll say to me, he'll be like, where did you get this from? Like, it's not anything we've planned. What? That, that what, must be going tricky. On? I mean, working with someone else actually as well. Gosh, I mean, that's, that's a whole other I, I think it's been a blessing <laughs> to me more than it's been a curse because it's, it's honestly like having somebody else's eyes outside of it who's like, mm. no. You know, like, I have so many, I get sort of rambles as well, which I'm terrible for. I will get an idea of one of the other characters and I'll want to go and investigate it, but sometimes yeah, I put it in the wrong yeah. book or the wrong place. And he'll just be like, nope, this doesn't fit here. And just having that kind of cohesion between us mm. has saved no, so helpful. much so much editing hard break the same sort of tendency to actually sort of slightly overpopulate everything i do so there's all the, you're like, oh this is yeah. interesting oh let's bring this in oh what about what are they doing you know this kind of thing so yeah yeah you have to keep a bit of a focus on what this is actually supposed to be about or just <laughs> yeah and it's hard especially if you've got really interesting characters who are just completely off the cuff and you think i really want to I want to dive into this and rather than mm. opening a new document and doing it, which I now do because my co-author is so stringent with me, um, I used to just go for it and then mm. he would be like, who is this? Why are they in this story? Um, so yeah, he's he's been a great, great balancing act for me, but now I'm doing it on my own and I'm sort of discovering my, for myself that uh, all these lessons I've had with him I have to really sort of enforce on myself <laughs> yes. and try and keep the the focus going. Um, it's one of the but... things about a series, and this has been one of the pleasures of writing this, is that you, when you've written the first one, you then sort of, you know the backstory now, so you can yeah. move forward with these people and, and kind of travel with them and see where it takes you and them. Um, I like that. I think it's quite hard work. work I'm just actually researching a whole new series at the moment, which is set in a completely different period in Birmingham, which is exciting. I mean, I'm really excited about it, but it's like, well, it's hard work. You know, all these new people to kind of get to grips with. But they do have a way of, I don't know if you find this, they have a way of sort of introducing themselves. Yeah, yeah, they do. Um, my worst, I think, moments for me is that they will just suddenly appear at 2, 3 in the morning <laughs> when I was supposed yes. to be going to sleep. Um, yes. yes. you know and well, then I, I've got the phone out and I'm like making notes so that I don't forget or when I wake up at least I, I got it right mm. um, you know and I, I have to now set aside days of what I call plot days so like a Sunday usually I'll go right okay not visiting anyone today I'm not studying I'm not doing anything else I am just going to plot this book or this character's you know backstory or whatever mm. and since Sounds i good. started doing that i get more sleep i i don't i don't get the horrific idea at like half past three in the morning ah i need to write this 
Yeah, and the thing is, you always Which think, is this great. is so good. I'll, I can't remember this in the morning, and it's completely... I mean, I have found mysterious bits of paper by my bed with sort of little cryptic messages on afterwards, thinking, what on earth yep. was that? <laughs> See, I, I, I learned no a long idea time what that ago. Means. <laughs> yeah, I learned a long time ago to put it on my phone because my fingers work faster if right. I'm typing than if I'm writing. And also, I can sort of capture the title of whatever it is or the character that I'm thinking of and then I just make notes underneath it and that helps so much because I don't lose lose things and I have a terrible mm-hmm. habit of dreaming stories yeah and living the stories in my sleep and I'm luckily enough that I can I usually hold on to my 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 dreams for about two hours when I wake up mm-hmm and then that two hours, if I if I can hold on to it long enough, I will just blitz it down as fast as I can, and then I worry about <laughs> yeah. it later. Um, on plot day, I can pick just pick up all these random pieces of notes and just plot it. And that, well, I'm that glad yours are good. I mean, so I usually chance. think they're brilliant while I'm asleep, and then when I wake up, I realise they're quite rubbish. <laughs> they don't seem quite as good as I thought at the time. But... Um. <laughs> I, I think for me, because of, of the way that I learned to write, I, I, I sort of write, started writing when I was seven, eight. Mm, I didn't have anything else to put my imagination or creativity into. And I always thought I was a mismatch for my family because I didn't have that creativity link. Mm-hmm. Like I couldn't understand where mine had come from. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I discovered I had a cousin who was a a famous Shetland poet that nobody told me about. And then I was like, okay, maybe I do have a connection into this family. Um, And it really, from just sort of listening to stories about him, I was able to kind of, I've been able to grow my writing a little bit. And I've been able to say, okay, this is why my head works the way it does. Mm. Mm. (laughs) You know? Um, But we are the only two in the family that's ever published. And it's, it's kind of weird to have that idea that he dreams a lot of what he writes and I dream a lot of what I write um, he's more poetry mm. and I'm more fictional stories So yeah. it's weird you should say that actually because I'm the same, I mean I don't know if it's really always a gene, I know we had a lot of letter writers in the family, I mean really quite serious yeah. you know, writing a lot but nobody else really had the education in former generations, so they were left school at 14 and Whatever, whenever the law made you leave school, they all left school. Yeah. But I have a second cousin who I've never even met, who's a sort of an award-winning poet in England as well. And it's a slightly weird thought because I don't know him at all, but I just know that somewhere there's this sort of yeah. tendency, which is, you know, nobody else seems to have. But yeah, yeah and I think that, like every writer who is out there, we've had sort of, you know, there's. I almost feel like it's they store up the creativity for one person and then they just yes. dump it into this poor unsuspecting <laughs> person and we end up with I, I say it's a gift but it could also be a curse like the writer's curse where you know you just all you ever want to do is tell stories and you want to entertain yeah. people and and mine grew we from telling stories in hospitals we have quite a few hit the bottle in my family and I just think well this is an alternative to addiction isn't it <laughs> yeah. it's probably well, better, mine, really. mine is writing <laughs> Like writing, coming up with stories, telling stories. Yeah, well, mine too, but it's better than being an alcoholic. <laughs> yeah, and and I, well, to be fair, I think my addiction is buying books. I think my husband would say I am very awful at buying hundreds of books. 
But I got an excuse mm. though. Publishers send them to me, so I'm not yeah. buying them. And you are a writer, so. <laughs> yes, I always say I claim that my library is 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 from my, uh, from from people who are lovely enough to donate their books to it. Um, I think my children will hate me one day when I uh, pass on several thousand copies of different books signed to their mum. You know, <laughs> I, th- I think I think there'll be a lot of. Uh, God, could she not have gotten rid of this thirty years ago, forty years? <laughs> yeah, death cleansing. <laughs> but it me, it, I also say it it insulates the house a bit more. That's true. Yes, you know, there's there's hundreds yes. of uses for them. So <laughs> I, I love it. Um, do you find like what causes your inspiration to kind of kick in a gear? Do you have like? Do you see watch stuff on TV and then you get inspired, or do you use it through reading or through just life experience? What would you say is your biggest um, well for your creativity? That's an interesting question because I think with these particular books, with this series of books, I mean I've written. I'm just researching my thirtieth book, right? So I have, I have deadlines that can really kick your creativity. Of course, you know what I mean. Is that feeling? But actually, with with these, it's it's the research itself. I think, you know, I get excited about finding out stuff. It kind of starts to connect up or, or or reject it if it's something that's just not right. But there's that feeling of moving into this. I mean, I'm feeling this quite sharply at the moment because I've started researching Victorian Birmingham, which is an extraordinarily wow. interesting place about which hardly anyone has written anything. It's quite peculiar. Yeah. There's quite a lot of written history about it, but very, very few novels. Um, and it is you know we all have this kind of there's all those victorian stories that we've all grown up with with dickens and elizabeth gaskell and the rest of it sadly there wasn't an author in birmingham who was that prominent yeah birmingham didn't have an elizabeth gaskell you know um so in a way it's well known but then there's an awful lot of detail that isn't you know it's just finding out that but i have this real sense of excitement of kind of going back into this place that i know really well but trying to you know, even just looking at the maps, I've got these gigantic maps I've just printed out of really detailed bits of the city and trying to think, how does that, you know, if you stepped into that, would it feel anything like it feels now? Yeah. I think every place has a sort of atmosphere, doesn't it? Would it have had the same atmosphere 150, 200 years ago? I don't know. You know and some I, of the if, buildings you, if you look there. at maybe the industries that was taking place at that time, that would yeah. tell you a lot more about what the atmosphere was. Like, yeah, well, it would have been a lot more smelly, that's for sure, and smoky yeah. and generally filthy. But there are, you know, some of the churches were there, some of the buildings were there, this, this kind of thing. Yeah, you know. of course. I mean, so, the, yeah, the, the one thing you can always depend on is industry, religion, and, you know... schools and things like that. Yeah, those are the three things. influences. And if you can tap into, well, what was the syllabus back then? What was the industries back then? Mm. You can kind of piece together it's almost like solving a murder you're trying to piece together all the bits that makes that universe work and also um, it's overwhelming because there's so much of it i mean this was yeah cradle of the industrial revolution is just enormous amount of it of course so yeah. i mean this won't be a one volume thing this will be several but you know it's kind of yeah. trying to pinpoint for this book what i need rather than trying to put it all in you know because it's just way too much stuff so yeah that i think for this it's definitely the research um I mean, at the moment, I'm also not, not that, that we're not here to talk about this, but I'm also being mentored. I'm learning to write for television. And actually, one thing that is wow. inspiring for that is obviously watching other things on television. It's a bit like, you know, you yes. read a book and that inspires you with your book. It's it's kind of similar. But I, I do think this this 
particular stuff with the history is the research because you can't write about something that you don't know about. So until you actually you find out something, you think, oh, wow, this would be great. What an amazing atmosphere. What an amazing piece of information. All that kind of thing. So, Yeah, and it's funny you say that because I also studied to write television. And when I was writing my historical novel, which I hope to one day send to you, I had to think on it in that way of, well, not only am I writing this as a book, I've got to write this as a show. Mm-hmm. And it is such two different art forms. People don't realize that you're, Very you're talking yeah. Yeah. millions of years apart in what you have to do. Because with, with writing a novel, you get to go into the minds and you get to, sure. to yeah. internalize. And you can't do that on a show. No, and you no, can't, absolutely. you know, you can't fill in the backstory the way that we're used to. We have to show everything. Um, so anyone who makes the jump, I am, I have a lot of respect for because it's not yeah, easy. Too. It's not. Yes, it's not. You have to almost grow yourself a new brain or a brain extension. Anyway, if you're already yeah. a storyteller, it's kind of a. I mean, I think I have quite a visual imagination anyway, but it's like having to dramatize. It, it's just yeah. really hard work, actually. <laughs> Well, Thanks I hope me, you anyway, let me know when this comes out because I'm going to want to see ever, it. Yeah, don't hold your breath. <laughs> well, I mean, I say the same about mine, but um, it is good because I think writers, particularly authors, we we can almost create a 3D world. Mm. And that is so important to television because that's how things like Downton Abbey worked. You know, that's how yeah. Sanditon worked was having a very 3D world. And being able to bring that skill in is is not something a lot of TV writers have. They have a very kind of set focus on, well, we're thinking of visual, we're thinking of this, we're thinking, they have a set way of working and we bring in something new and different. Um, and I think that's great. I got to mm-hmm. pick a brain of an incredible director and writer recently who's done sort of period stuff. And, and I'll say the same about him. He is one of the most incredible brains. But when it came to me going, well, why is a character doing this? That was that was when the conversation got more interesting because it was almost like I took every lesson I've had as a writer since that young age and I've compiled it all together to create what I what skills I have now. Um, and funnily enough, I started off writing and wrestling, which is what wrestling. Writing wrestling? You mean writing yeah. about wrestling? No, no, what? writing wrestling shows. Oh, what is a wrestling all... show? <laughs> what about wrestling? No, no, basically the idea is that when you go to a wrestling event, the yeah. matches are all predetermined. But what you don't realize is there's actually a writer in the back who comes up with the story of why these two people are fighting. And we come right. up with how this rivalry between these two people are going to grow to a big final showdown and a lot of the time you have to argue with these people because Mm -hmm. they've got an idea of what their character they create the characters we just create the story and you have to almost fight with them (laughs) to say this is what we've got this is what's happening just shut up and go on and do it um, interesting. I've never heard of this at all as a thing. No, I mean... and it's not known. And I, I went and I studied under somebody who told me very flat out, look, women don't write wrestling for a living. It doesn't happen. You're never going to be big. Just move on. Find something else. 
Uh, I didn't take, take that room. very well. <laughs> I didn't take it very well. I never take right. anything like that very well. And I started writing novels because there was this kind of pushback of we don't like females in the locker room that isn't wrestlers or referees or, you know, managers or whatever. Um, and it is a very male-dominated sport, mm. as, you, as mm. everyone knows. And so I turned to novels and then I became friends with a lot of the boys and that fraternity took me in. But those initial lessons I had from a wrestling writer has fed so much into my novel writing, into my screenwriting, because I really do ask those hard questions of, well, why are we doing this now? What's the purpose of this now? And I catch myself when I'm plotting, saying, why? Why, where, and how? Yes, and yes. Yeah, and I think there's, what I've found is there's an awful lot of kind of people expressing very strong opinions about how this should be done. I mean, yes. you need to listen to lots of different people because they have a strong... But but some of, I mean like there's I don't know I'm going to say this it sounds really prejudiced but the, the actual I'm interested in television the actual film industry mm-hmm. still seems dominated by very loud opinionated American men basically yes it's like, and that's very backstory's not a thing you know yeah. you don't ever do back and you're like well actually I'm really interested in the backstory sorry <laughs> maybe it's because I'm a novelist but you know you don't have to do things just because someone says very loudly that it's done a certain way exactly. Um, one but, day, yeah. if I can get to that effigion of, of being, if I ever write wrestling and I get offered a really decent job to do it, I will do it just because I know it opens the door for other females like myself who can't sure, wrestle sure, sure. to come in behind me. And I, I've gotten such great opportunities. I was mentored at Shona Land uh, with the creative department there. And their approach is completely different to every other production company I had, had interned for. And I thought, this is, I'm seeing the change. I am seeing right. the change in the industry, but it's who you're talking to. You need to know the companies that are open-minded, who might want mm. to consider a different point of view. But you also need to be considerate of, right, well, what producers am I working with? What mm directors am I working with because those are the real voices that are going to make the difference yeah. to your project yes and that's yes. the important part that people don't realize is you need those people who will fight for your project as passionately as you but will also be people that are more open-minded to your style of writing yes. and your well, style I think this of craft is the thing. and you get to a certain age where you, I mean obviously there's part of me that like yes if somebody likes my stuff that's great but actually it's not just yep. like anyone is it you want someone I'm too old and too kind of annoying to just want anyone who'll just... <laughs> yes, I'm a bit the same. I'm, 30, I'm 33 and I, I still go to that place in my head of, well, who are you really? You know? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I think uh-huh. that is left over from wrestling because you kind of get this point of if you're not important or you're not working with someone important, you kind of have this feeling like what you're doing doesn't really matter. And it's it's an awful habit left over. But even now, when I I look at my friends who've succeeded and done really well, I think, you know, that's where I need to go. I need to change. I need to be the change, not sit and complain about it, but I need to go and actually do it. (laughs) Yeah, you have Um, to be quite bloody minded just to keep doing this at all. And I think, you know, Scottish people, we are very stubborn. Yeah. Generally. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Shetlanders more so and you know I've said 
I've said to my husband for years, I'm like, one day we're going to live in LA and we're going to change, I'm going to change this industry. And he, he rolls his eyes at me and he's like, I'll believe it when it happens, you know, because it, it does, it takes a very long time to do it. Mm-hmm. And you almost have to put everything you've got into it. I mean, I, think I prefer that's the same we don't want to live in LA. That's about the last thing on earth I want to do. <laughs> I want the sunshine. I want the sun. <laughs> I'm done with winters. I don't like winter. <coughs> No, um, up there it must be terrible. <laughs> it's bad enough down here at the moment to see. Well, it, well, in Shetland, I mean, you you grow up with sixty mile an hour winds. You grow up yeah. with actually, well, I, I wind, am seeing... like being battered all the time, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You, well, you learn to walk at an angle. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, I always remember, you know, my my husband when he came up for the first time. He's very tall, so the wind would just hit him, mm. sort of straight on. And I I had to kind of say t- I didn't even think of it really to be honest but I said to him I said you need to bend with the wind a little I said otherwise you're you're just going to waste all your energy finding it mm. and when he tr- when he tried it he realized I was right and that's why everyone in Shetland we, we walk at a certain degree <laughs> yes. um but I got to see cyclones in Shetland and I got to grow up with Viking culture and Viking history and, and I feel like Knowing what my ancestors must have lived through to survive the religious cleansings and the, you know, the famines and everything. Shetland was so lucky because we were so far north, people forgot about us most of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Quite remote, You know, that that stuff never really impacted the islands until we were sold to Scotland as part of a marriage gift. And then that became the divide between there's people in Shetland who say, oh, we're Scottish, we're Scottish, we're Scottish. And then you've got the other side who say, well, actually, no, we're Norwegian. Mm. We're Mm. just, we were gifted, you know. Um, And your accent is different. You know, it's just not the same as a Scottish. I'm very lucky because the way I grew up, my grandmother decided when I was like seven or eight, we are not talking Shetland. We are going to talk properly and drilled it repeatedly into my head and my mother was the same my mother was dyslexic so half my half my childhood I was in Aberdeen and half of it I was in Shetland which got me so bullied because I didn't have an accent like everybody else um and I ended up with a very American accent in the end because Mm -hmm. I ended up being friends with the American kids because they were easier to get along with than the Shetland kids which Yeah. Made the bullying worse too because they're like, "Hey, you're one of us," you know. Um, so yeah, and and when I'm in America, it's it's so funny because everybody they can't place my accent, and I get I get asked so many times, "Are you Cali? Are you from Cali?" And I'll be like, "No, close." <laughs> but if I say I'm from from Shetland, they say, "Oh, is that Ireland or Wales?" They don't quite realize that Scotland goes further a long way yes you know um but i think we all discover that i think anyone who who works with people in the uh, transatlantic area experiences that slight complication but your book i think i would love to see sort of the cadbury history particularly from the quaker's point of view taken to life and i think seeing that on tv would be amazing if it ever i mean that's not that's not what i'm doing at all. No, I know that, but I'm saying that was the one <laughs> that I will, I will quite happily 
you know, harass my husband and say, right, we're watching this tonight, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, no, I mean, quite, it would be, it would be nice. I mean, I don't know, it's sort of, um, actually, yeah, I mean, the stories I've written, one of the things that was really tricky about it was that this is a real place, you know, and it's not only a real place, but it's a real place that no one seems to have anything bad to say. The worst anyone will say is, well, you know, in the end, it was a factory. So like any other factory, it's repetitive and, and you know, factory boring. work is just kind of repetitive and boring. But um, there was so much on offer there. But again, you know, you come up slightly against this thing that's in a story where everything is good. I can see why not that many stories are written about Quakers, except in their early history, because their early history was full of conflict and difficulty. They've always been thrown in jail and stuff like this. But actually, yeah. a lot of... You know, and there, of course there are conflicts within Quaker life, but actually there's this sort of well-meaning, philanthropic kind of approach to running the factory and giving things to the city, which is really impressive. But it's not its not the kind of grist of conflict for a story, do you know what I mean? It's no. an interesting background, that's all really. Um... And I, I think the factory wasn't just a source of income for people, it was kind of like a beacon of inspiration too. Because... And a huge community, I mean you could you could yeah. live your whole life around Cadbury's if you worked there, because they had these playing fields, they had swimming pools, they had dentistry, they had clubs of every possible kind. You could just spend your whole life within that sort of, I suppose a lot of big right. firms were quite like that in those days, there was a much more communal you know, joining in, going on, a, on trips, doing all these things with the people you worked with. Which I suppose in some ways was rather nice. I mean, speaking as an isolated worker, it sounds actually quite nice to me. It does, <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I haven't worked with anyone for about 30 years, so it sounds like quite jolly, really. Um, but yeah, did it's, you know, it's certainly distinctive. See, when you were sort of researching into the Quakers, did you sort of hear a lot of the different superstitions people had about them? What do you mean, superstitions? Well, growing up where I did... You know, Quakers was a bad word for a very long time. Right, because, no, not down here, really. You know, it was weird because people kind of took it on, not in a kind of idea of, oh, they don't fight or, they, they, you know, whatever. It was more of, it was a very old kind of way of thinking where, you know, certain people would, would kind of pull resources you know, you would sort of covet these resources. And I think money was the biggest one where they always sort of, you know, people say, oh, that person's rich. You know, you know, they're a Quaker, right? It, that was the kind of attitude going up. And I well, always thought really that was weird. No, well, actually, it's um, not that weird. I mean, in the sense that they were very good business people. And because yeah. they weren't part of the established, like the, like the Catholics, like a lot of other people, weren't part of the establishment, they were kind of excluded from a lot of, what you might call the high status work you know so a lot of them went into business and helped each other you know started banks actually um, but there were these yeah. in innocent trades as they were called which strangely involved things like brewing which is not what you'd expect is it like, you brewing beer no, you chocolate chocolate was one but they were just very good with money and i've noticed mm -hmm. it with with quaker i would say quakerism has changed a lot in the last 30 years i wasn't a quaker i before, would say so yeah. It's, yeah it's opened out a lot then and, and most people you meet are not born Quakers they're people who've come in from either nowhere or from other churches or you know something like that um but there is still this kind of really quite shrewd way of of um stewarding money and it's generous yes. there's always money being given away and you know the Cadbury's gave away huge I mean they built the whole housing estate they gave away lots of money but they were good with money yes. <laughs> you know and I suppose that's how all these businesses of which there were many you know 
And I, I mean, I the city of Birmingham in the 18th century was run by about five families, and they were all Quakers or Unitarians, and they were very philanthropic. You yeah. know, they built things, they did things, but they they knew how to do money. You know. Yeah, and I think anything that's different, um, not just in Shetland, but you know, when when you look at New York, is another prime example that if you've got a lot of money, they assume you must be Jewish. It's just, it's like a, a very old yes. Yes. way of thinking. Yes. And I think growing up with the way I did, it started off with Quakers and then it became the Gypsies. When the Gypsies moved in, it became very much of, oh, whoa, no, no. You know, it's like a xenophobia thing that I grew up with. Mm. And I never understood it. So I maybe wasn't the best example for, for you know, Shetland living because I would be like, oh, that's a new parent. I'm going to go talk to them. I've never met this person before. Yeah. I, want to speak I mean, to actually, it. we happen to know the only Quakers on Shetland because we hired a croft of them when we were staying there. Yeah. There's a couple who live on Shetland who are Quakers, but there's nobody else. I don't know if there were many up there before because there aren't any meetings. There, there was, but they're very. it was very secretive. And I think it still kind of is up there because it's such a small place. People don't realise just how small the islands hmm. is until you go. Yes, yes. And, you know... There's the Morton Lodge, and there's the Knight Templars are there, and you've got Catholicism there, you've got Presidency there, and we have Mormons now, which really, yeah, <laughs> we've got Mormons that. now, that which was never a thing, you no. know, it, it no. now is a thing, um, and that was the thing in Shetland. Everybody tried to keep their own secrets because they never wanted to seem like they were sticking their head above the pulpit. Because if you stuck your head above the pulpit, chances was it you were going to get stuff lobbed at you. So yeah. to live yeah. a quiet life in Shetland, you had to be really good at keeping secrets. Yeah. I never I, mean, was. I think Quakers in general, all the meeting houses are tucked away somewhere quite quiet, you know, for the same yeah. reason. I mean, I grew up in, in, my parents were Church of England, the Anglican Church, which is the main street, you know. Yeah. So from their point of view, they weren't religious actually, but that was their kind of nominal, you know. You had to pretend, um, yeah. Yeah. No, no, they didn't bother going to church. I mean, I was instinctively religious for some reason. I used to go with the neighbours, but they they didn't go. Um, but they just. I, that... I used to go as well, and it would drive yeah, my mother absolutely like... crazy. Yeah. My mother was like, "Why are you doing that?" Anyway, but their view was like everybody else was just a bit weird. So that included whether it was Quakers or Catholics were Italian mission to the Irish. You know, Quakers were what the hell are they? Yeah. You know, <laughs> it was just all these Protestants and nonconformists weren't quite the thing. There was always this sort of everybody feeling a bit superior to somebody for some reason you know yeah people, i still see like even in the big cities today the big cities is, is actually safer because they don't have that attitude of pulpits. no well there's more diversity um, generally isn't there so, yeah, yeah. And, and i think i love cities for that reason because yeah. i am not somebody that naturally conforms i don't know how to do it <laughs> i'm also an introvert and i I have periods where I have to be very, very, very social. And then I have periods where I'm like, okay, I want to close my front door, lock it, and I don't want to see anyone for six months. (laughs) You know, and um, so for me, Shetland was was stifling for that reason. I I struggled with it. And then when I I sort of went a bit nuts when I moved in with my husband, because I'm like, oh, there's thousands of people here. Like, I can be a new person every day. Where are you now? I moved to, to Glasgow. Oh, Glasgow. Okay. And uh, that is a culture shock. Mm. Because I had no clue what it was like. 
I had been, it was weird because in Shetland when you were growing up, you were given warning videos of living on the mainland. Really? So they would, yeah, so they would show these <laughs> videos about these big cities and how you could die and how you, you know, all these safety warnings about going south. And of course, me being this sort of fearless, slightly wild child went off to, to Glasgow with this man that my parents didn't really know. And uh, I fell in love with the place. It was like a whole nice Glasgow, other world. Yeah. But it was culture yeah. shock hell. Because I had no idea of customs. I had no idea of what you do in Shetland it does not exist down here. You know, it's totally different. Um, totally different way of speaking as well. And then I, I kind of by living in the East End, I learned about the religious divides, the social housing mm. divides, the class divides, the wealth divides. And this was all new for me. And then I went to Los Angeles and that was in a totally other completely yeah, culture shock because there was a whole other set of divisions that they existed that I knew nothing about. Um, so yeah, and I think for me, the more that I, I sort of traveled and I've experienced, like I fell in love with Durham when we were there. I sold out my first ever book show thing in Durham uh, and I loved it there. And I loved mm. certain parts of England because I had grown up riding horses. And unfortunately, if you're riding horses, you have to travel with them. And, and that was, yeah. So for me, I get periods where I want to travel and talk to as many people as I can. And then I want to go home and I want to write for yeah. six months. Yeah, it's like you go out and kind of absorb a whole lot of stuff and then sort of do something with it. You have to take it Yeah, you, in but you have to kind of and... lock the front door so you have that yeah. little safety bubble to just write in, which mm. was great. Uh, however, for the pandemic, I, I struggled with writing because I couldn't go out and absorb everybody mm. and come back. Right, no, that's not okay, actually. In fact, we moved house during the pandemic, so I still hardly know anybody. So it's not that difficult to shut the front door. <laughs> just, just like, well, I, I did too. I, I had moved to Shetland just before the pandemic to work as a learning support teacher and right. be with my family. And of course, the pandemic cat the day that my husband moved up. So we spent six months on the islands, not able to go anywhere or do anything because they stopped all ferries in between islands. Yeah, I can imagine. And then yes. we decided to move back to Glasgow. And then there was the kind of whole isolation of winter because we were put back in lockdown. It was just mad to me. Absolute madness. Um, I learned to do Zoom calls and work online and work remotely, which mm. was something I'd never done before. No, well, I certainly think most people had. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that was a whole world. And then I, I kind of thought oh i'm going to start a podcast right in the middle of all this you know because i need that outlet of conversation with people uh never did i think i would have over a year's worth of recordings no or that publishers would get behind the show mm. and and start recommending people to me how um, often do you do it Kristen? well the shows come out every monday but okay lately, that's quite a lot. Yes. i've been doing yes. a lot of of spotlight shows which is when the show comes out on the day of the person's book release right and the last three months i've had a lot of people who needed these these special spotlight shows so people have gotten kind of used to having maybe two three shows a week so um that's been interesting 
and then of course I obviously have the the review spotlight shows and I do I did re do some readings of my own work and yeah never never thought never thought that I would be here over a year because it'll be first of May it will be the official year that we've been doing this but I'm over 50 episodes already wow and do, and, do a lot of people listen or can you, uh, yeah you can tell? funnily yes. enough yeah and in I never thought that would ever happen either you know I get a lot of listeners in the UK and I get a lot of listeners in Australia and wow. Texas yeah. is Impressive. a huge fan favorite um, occasionally I get high numbers in Russia wow why Russia I don't know strange but I'll take it, it. yes you yes. know <laughs> um, hello, and it, hello it, Russia <laughs> yeah you know you just never know and I think the great thing is because this show is very honest and we're very open and we talk about so many different things people feel like they're getting a full experience mm. and then they're not just getting to know me which you know they have to listen to every week but they get to know these amazing people that they wouldn't have otherwise gotten to know like I've managed to introduce a whole world of crime writers mm -hmm. to America who don't really know that they existed until they started listening to my show and then hmm. I you know There's I've a had lot a lot of writers American... out there aren't there yeah I mean, there, there is so many writers. writers it's good to get recommendations because there's just a vast number of people writing now exactly and that that was my thing and of course in America they don't know a lot about period pieces because they're not overly promoted in in America because people don't know they'll sell no. And I've been able to sort of say, hey, guys, you know, this is a whole other world that you get to experience. You like Bridget Jones, you know, or you like Bridgerton or you like this. These are people you should be looking at. Mm. Um, and that seems to have, it seems to be helping both sides of the pond, which I'm feeling very glad of. You know, yeah, we started off. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We started off with Marianne Curley. Well. Uh-huh. It's, it's a lot of work more than I actually thought it was going to be. I thought, oh, I'll just turn on a camera talk for an hour and hang up, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But there's editing and then there's the research that you do, um, you know, and then I, I might get three You're or four reading. names in one day. And then mm. I'm like, oh, crud, I've got to I've got to schedule this or I've got to, you know, do this. And of course, I'm still still a writer myself with. Yeah, I just signed a prolific contract. So I have, um, Wonderful. I think it's 12 books a year that they want out of me. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was just like, okay, I could do that. That's, that's, that's what a prolific contract is. I said, never even heard of one of those before. They're, they're, they're just, I think they're so rare. And it's, a, it's an independent publisher who took me on and they were like, hey, you know, let's expand your range and whatever you want to write, we'll, we'll do it. You know. So it's one a month, but then how long would they expect them to be? Oh, any size. Okay. I don't have a restriction. And that's the great thing because mm -hmm. I've got a 32 book series I wanted to do. And then I've got another one, which is probably about 30. So a lot of the writing's already done because I've, I've, I've been prolifically writing since I was 18. Um, so I, I won't worry about it till oh. I'm like no. two years in. And then I might start going, I really should finish <laughs> He's done 29, but I just can't think of the other three. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's it's amazing to to be given that opportunity. And of course, I'm still at university studying. <laughs> I'm in my third year. Um, what are you studying? Literature? Creative writing. 
Oh, creative writing. But okay. I'm doing an so open, open, what's known as an open bachelor's, which means you can actually study whatever you want, mm. but you have to pass. And then at the end, they add up all your credits. And That's great. You so you can take time over that. You don't have to do it over. Yeah. 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 Of course, yeah. I decided this year I was going to take creative writing, not realizing that their idea of creative writing is completely different to the actual world of creative writing. I am going to That's be very interested to see what they think of publishing and what they say about publishing because I'm the only one on the course other than the lecturers that's actually published. Yeah, I did the same. Actually, I did a master's a few years ago and my requirements were different from the other students because I was already working as a writer, but I wanted input and, and kind of stimulation, really. I hadn't yeah. seen anyone for a long time. It was great. I mean, the course was not that great, but the other students were great. And, you know, yeah, we I love the, the workshop students. Like... I'm just, I'm not a fan of... They have a set way of doing things and yeah, you have yeah. to write a set way and you have to do reflections in a set way. And, and I think they don't understand my dyslexia very well either. So it has been, it's been <laughs> oh, very no. testing. Um, if I pass this year, I, it will be a bloody miracle, but um, I will keep, with that. keep yeah. fighting for it, you know, because no, I got told when I was 16, I would never pass my standard grades. And I did. I, yes. I don't remember sitting them, but I passed them. Perhaps and then they said Somebody to me, else did it. <laughs> uh, probably. And then I got told, you know, um, I would never have a higher education. And now well, it's, it's always a, a great provocation to actually do something, isn't it? When somebody yeah. tells you, you know, you're going to fail. I've been something. told all my life, no and can't. Yeah. And you're like, no. And I learned at the age of five to say, watch me. Yeah, yes, I can. You'll see. Yes, we um, can. It's great, actually, to have them publishing. Because... Yeah, no, it is, you're right. Something we haven't talked about, though, which which we just touched on there, is the whole question of workshopping, which I've actually done for years. Yeah. I, I started off in a, a very good workshop in Birmingham, which also set up an independent publisher. And then when I left, I had a sort of, I had one in Reading. I had a gap for quite a while, and then actually one came out of the the masters, and I have another one, and we just set up a screen one. But I found that really valuable, not for these it books. Is really I to write these too fast, and they I have to kind of you know this just doesn't work with this because you, you know you take a chapter and then you finish the book. It doesn't make any sense. But with yeah. anything else I'm writing, I think it's just a really nice thing to get other people's eyes on it, get different, and get company actually as well. For for me, workshopping was good because it gave me the knowledge that I actually have talent. I think well, for yes. me that was what it was. Yes. Um, I can whip a poem out in five minutes, but doesn't mean it's any good. No, of um, course. No. Comparing to my cousin, it's probably not. But I found workshops. I started off in Glasgow and I, I in the East End, I did poetry workshops. And that's how I, I kind of got my feet wet. And then I was like, well, this isn't for me. Mm. And then I went into wrestling writing and that's a totally different world. And they don't give you praise in that world at all. <laughs> doesn't sound like it, no. <laughs> and you have to kind of find that praising self in there. And then I lost total faith, walked away. I had burnout a couple of years ago. I burned out with writing, walked away, and the pandemic hit, and then I was forced back in. Mm. Um but do you need to write at that rate? I mean, you would burn out if you're writing that fast because I only write yeah. one novel a year, partly because I also want to, I have written two books under another name, actually, for, yeah. because I want to do something else. Is that if you've got a cat? 
Yes, I do. <laughs> he's, he's annoying yes. the crap out of me. <laughs> he's, but I mean, um, you know, I, he's sitting, I want to do uh, other stuff. I, I don't want to be kind of writing the same novel like six a year or something. That doesn't make any sense to me. But yeah. I mean, do you need, do you just like writing that fast or do you have to kind of do that? I mean, for, for me, it's a case of it just comes. I just have to right. hold on to the end. Like I, I've seen me go four or five days without doing anything else. Mm. And then at the end of the four or five days, I'm like, oh, I could really do with a shower. Or maybe How could you do that? You've got kids, right? I mean, I had four kids. So I didn't feel I could just do that for, for four days. On, I mean, how do you do that? Oh, no, that I don't have kids, so I have that Oh, luxury. I'm sorry, I thought you did have kids, right. Okay. No, I'm saying, like, one day, you know, that's the plan, is to have this legacy to pass on to them. But for me, oh, okay. I because I spend lots of my life in a hospital, or I go in and out of hospital so much, there's nothing else to do in hospital. No, for sure, for sure. And it drives me mad because you, you can have one day where you're expecting to go for tests and nothing happens. And then you've got another day where they do nothing but interrupt you. So yes. for me, writing yes. was the therapy that I needed to deal with the sure. trauma of being in hospital. Sure, yeah. Um, and I've, I've had this illness since I was two and a half years old. So a lot of the time when you're stuck in a bed and you've got nothing else to do, your mm. mother has had to take a break because she can't stand you anymore. You know, you, <laughs> All the you, situation. Which sorry, is I, don't situation. Know, I didn't realize you were sick. So what, what is oh, your yeah. illness? I have um, idiopathic rheumatoid arthritis. Okay. Yeah, I know what that is. Yes. So yeah. I got mine from diphtheria. Right. Uh, which was totally Unusual. unexpected. These days? Yeah. How, uh, yeah. You know, I was... died out in this country. Everyone did. And it was me and a group of girls. We were playing and in a play area of my my housing area and sheep had gotten into it and there was an open sewer and they, they've never been able to tell us what caused it um right but the four of us went down and did the area and i got the best situation out of all of them but i was also the last to get diagnosed because it was not something doctors had seen in shetland before and there's been something like eight cases since since mine and they still don't know what it is on the island that causes kids to come down with it. and uh i got diphtheria and then two and a half years old they diagnosed me with arthritis and that became the whirlwind of our family because Mm. you know i had been a perfectly normal child (laughs) until then and then our world just sort of changed and Mm. uh my whole view of the world had to change and I had to grow up very fast um you know and my brother he had asthma he had lactose intolerancy so for the first five years my parents had not physically slept because he was so hyperactive with all the steroids they gave him and then they got me and I was quite happy to sleep in Mm. fact there was my number of times they used to go in in the middle of the night and poke me (laughs) <laughs> just to make sure I was still alive yeah. because yeah. you know this was a totally different child to the first one they had um and then when I when I got sick at two and a half it, it sort of tore my family in two because my mother had to go south with me all the time and my dad had to raise my brother and so yeah writing became the yeah, thing to kill totally time yeah. you know reading killed time and it was a very much a case of if you're stuck in hospital you're you're killing time they yep. tell you what's wrong and then go through the treatment and get home 
And so I, I actually did all my studying for school in a hospital, right. which is not ideal. <laughs> no, it isn't. But it does give, um, you, it, yeah. it gives you that requirement for somewhere. I mean, I grew up as an only child and then I was sent to boarding school. And I think that thing of needing somewhere to go in your head, yeah, you know, yeah. Is, is part of that kind of desire to it's an escape read and possibly write as well. Yes. Yeah. And and I remember the first story I ever wrote was from my aunt. She came down to, to the hospital to see me. I think she was down for, for some education course or something. And I had nothing to give her. And in Shetland, if people visit you, you always have food or something, you know. And I wrote her a story about a zoo. And she kept <laughs> it. And oh. it wasn't until recently she showed me it. And I was like, oh my. Oh my. Like, this is awful. Why? <laughs> I'm an eight-year-old and I, I couldn't spell and I couldn't yeah. I didn't know what Never grammar much. was and I've, I've had to kind of learn that the older yeah. I've gotten I've had to learn grammar I've had to learn spelling because these were not things that were drilled into us when we were learning in hospital um, and actually nobody realized I had dyslexia at the time either so I would put the wrong I'd put sentences in backwards mm. For you years, contend with basically, isn't yeah, it? yeah, and and now you know I've been publishing on and off since I was nineteen. Um, are they, these publishers with these prolific contracts? Are they British or are they American or what? These are British, yeah, British. The British Actually, yep. never heard they're of in that. Birmingham. Wow, it's a new one on me, I have to say. <laughs> they're a very small company, and I think she decided that there was a lot of writers need to be driven with their own marketing i think you know that better than mm. anybody mm. and media is a huge thing and she was finding a lot of authors didn't have the self-drive so she took on a very small group of us and said i will sign you to a prolific deal i will edit and i will do all your covers and i'll do all your formatting all you have to do is write and promote mm. and to me that sounded like a pretty good deal uh so yeah i i took the leap and the great thing is my books go to what you know warstone stores can have them on their shelves i can have them in libraries and I, I know that they're there i just haven't planned a signing um adventure yet but my that that is on my to-do list mm, but i mean that's, that's not necessarily the major thing is it that's i mean if you can get your books because i mean yeah. you're it, it's interesting that you say that because i quite often have people saying to me can you write more of them can you write one a month and I'm like yeah no <laughs> just no but the way <laughs> but that some it... people require that kind of yeah. it's like the monthly episode sort of thing. and I think she took the idea from Mills and Boone because Mills and Boone yes. expects you to write so many a year yes and for her she's like Crystal I know that you don't like to write one genre I know you like to write multiple I have YA fiction I do I have a murder mystery series that I'm going to do and then I have romance. And she's like, That's well, let's, let's use consistent publishing to keep your name out there. Because the thing with readers is they're always looking for the next thing. They're always wanting somebody to be continuing on a story yeah. so that they yeah. feel like it's a, a weekly episodic TV series. That's essentially what, what the market's wanting at the moment. And she's basically decided to, to do it that way. Um, and I just couldn't believe she picked me as one of the people to do that because I know a lot you of my like work. Ideal. Takes a lot of <laughs> you can write that editing. quickly. Yeah. But yeah. the great thing is I've got a stockpile. So normal books, t you know, in the old days, I could write a book in in sort of 
six weeks. Now I've got such a stockpile that all I do is I pick out something that I want to explore or something that I've got inspiration for. I edit the first one or I, I rewrite whatever it is in the first one. And then I, I have that basis to map out the second one and then I can go back to it. Um, yeah, I think yeah. when I last checked, I had over 30 books sitting waiting to go. Yeah, well, that's just because I've had so goodness, much time because, in my life. Yes. Yeah, sure. And, and, and are, they, thing, are they all published under it? the same name or do you have a whole load of different kind of personas with you? I'm going to have a lot of different pen names and that'll be a very first for me because I always just had Mick Carrington. And then I got Sorry, married. Sorry, say that again. A, a load of different what? I had a lot of different... Um, I'm going to have a lot of different pen names. So oh, I'm going to have my, my legal name, but I'm also going to have other names that they're going to use. And I had always ever done everything under McCarrington. So now that I'm married, it's they're like, let's expand on that. And I'm like, oh, okay. Because like, writers expect one name for one genre. This is actually yeah. the way that they're looking at this. So I'm dipping my toe into an entirely different way of working in a different world on this one but it's a good thing because i i'm expanding as a writer and i think as a, all of us as writers we need to keep pushing and expanding and learning yeah <laughs> sorry <laughs> yes i don't disagree <laughs> well i think and that's what i always say to new writers coming behind me, I'm like, don't saddle yourself with one genre. Mm -hmm. Write the stories that come to you. And if you don't publish it then, and everyone reckons it's a lot of rubbish, you never know when you're going to find somebody that doesn't think that. Editors no. change and leave publishers all the time. That's Does very not true. Mean... I mean, I, I think I did saddle myself with one genre, partly because actually... To be honest, most of the other actual genres of fiction are not for me, really. I don't really particularly want to write crime or yeah. fantasy or whatever. Um, I like the rootedness of what I do. I like the fact that it's rooted in the history of one place. And also, to be honest, I was bringing up four very small kids. Yeah, <laughs> you know, which it would have been hard going for you. Yeah, know what I was doing around, you know, to be able to do do my job and kind of keep it keep it in bounds, but. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's it also depends on how many risks you're prepared to take. Because this was my yeah. living. I wasn't really about to just kind of like, oh, I'll do this and that. That's come later. I mean, now I'm enjoying myself trying all sorts of things, and that's you know, and that's part the fun. Of the fun. I mean, yeah. I'm scared of when because we we are trying for a family, and when we have our family, I I will be kind of in that same boat of trying to figure out right. I'm really bad at time management. <laughs> right. <laughs> How am I going to do this? Because I can't write for 12 hours and then just be no. like, oh, I've got a kid. Crap. Yes. Sure. Um, you know, and, and I'm going to have to have a routine. And whereas, you know, I have seen myself get into a point where I've written from like nine in the morning through to like eight o'clock at night. And then I'm like, oh, I really should eat something. Yeah, I can't do that. Like, yeah, you really should eat something. You know, because yeah. I get so lost in that world that it's hard to see out of it. Mm. And I think with kids, it's going to give me at least that fresh perspective of, okay, I can't do this all the time. So I need to save it up. And then when there's yeah, something, and I think you, you, you I can, can kind of learn to do things in shorter bursts in a more kind of concentrated yeah. way. That's that's I mean, I, I feel now, actually, for the first time, because my kids have grown up, I have a grandchild, actually, but I feel I can actually, well, I have a 
have a husband who's just poked his head around the door as well. <laughs> um, but it's like yep. being able to do things without the break on a bit, finally. I know it doesn't suck because I've written about 30, more than 30 books, but actually I have had the break on in the sense that you can't just kind of do what you want with your day. You've got to be constantly, oh, I've got to go and pick up so-and-so, I've got to do this, you know. Um, whereas now there's yeah. a lot more flexibility and, and I, you know, I think, wow, about time, you know. <laughs> Yeah, Try it's almost like just immerse myself finally. You know. You've opened your wings and you can fly. Yeah. Well, um, yes, still trying. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing it. You're doing it. You're releasing some doing amazing it. yeah. pieces. It's you good. know, and good. and that's the great thing. Well, it's been an absolute honor to have you on. Um, I know you're super busy, so you taking any time out of your day to come and talk to us. No, no, no. It's lovely. It's lovely. I mean, we seem to have done most of the general chit chat all the way through, which is fine. It's been very interesting. Yeah. So. I mean, I haven't had to go to the questions at all, which is, you know, fantastic. I like these kind of podcasts um, more because I don't have to kind of structure it and I can just, so free just have a conversation. <laughs> and yes. that was what the Book and Life podcast was all about, was just having general conversations that that is about our lives because right we're more than just our work we yeah. all go to the supermarket yeah. we all put our trousers on one leg at a time none of us are millionaires well not all of us are millionaires and we don't have <laughs> servants <laughs> cleaning the house and no, picking no, the kids no, no. up and doing all no. these things for us you know so it's good to see the different side because i think a lot of the author world is presented mysteriously like we're mysterious creatures um, in fact, I had one that said, oh my gosh, you're actually outside your house. I thought you were like a troll and never came out, <laughs> you know, and I, and this was at a signing and I'm like, um, what do you say that? to that? You know, that is some strange projection, isn't it? Sort of, but I think you also do get probably part of the who... fault of these writers, you know, that we grew up with hearing about like Ernest Hemingway, you know, who always seemed to be off shooting something or, you yeah. know, you don't ever imagine him doing the laundry. He probably never did do the laundry. Let's face it. I don't think any of the men did laundry. No, well, this is another thing. It's gendered. But I think Jane Austen was doing her gendered. Laundry. There's a lot of gendering still going on, unfortunately. I mean, fortunately and unfortunately, it's like... But I think but, it's up to yeah. us as, as new voices to kind of say, hey, we are normal people. We go to a grocery store. We have cats. We have messes. No, I definitely don't have cats. No, 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 no. No cats. <laughs> <laughs> are you a dog person? More of a dog person. We don't actually happen to have a yeah. dog either at the moment, but yeah, more of a dog person. Yeah. But we but know yes, what we do. We it have has these to be lights fitted and... in somehow, and you have to. You have all these kind of threads that you're hanging on to all the time, and 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 kind how of do anyone it? can do it if they need to. Yeah, you know. If you I need mean, to I don't know how. I don't know how I do it. I don't like. I I will look at a book I've written, and my husband will know it better than I do. Yes, it's a bit like and a dream, isn't it? Like you wake up and I've... think. Did I do that? Yeah. And the amount of times yeah. I've looked at him and said, at a signing, what's the answer to that question? Because he knows. Yeah. He remembers the book. Yeah. I've deleted it. <laughs> so I mean, I, I had that a bit when you, when you first asked me the question. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't remember anything. Even though I had actually prepared this. Like, mine goes a complete blank. But it is a bit like yeah, a weird it, dream. I think it does that for all. At the time, and then it sort of disappears from your consciousness once you've actually written it. It's a strange thing. But... Yeah, for me, like when I go into the writing mode, I open a door in my mind and I just go down that path. Yeah. And that's all I think about. But once I've reached that end of the first book path or the, the final part of the path, that all vanishes so that the next path can, yeah, can be laid. Exactly. 
Yes. And I, I don't think people realize it is a universe in our world. We live in universes in our minds and we need space. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, um, yep. if I do a signing, I often reread the book that I'm going to go sign because if somebody asks me a question, I'm not going to have the answer to it. I know, I have this problem all the time. I have people saying to me, oh, what about that character in this book you wrote sort of 30 years ago? I have no idea. <laughs> I always, uh, one of the questions I always ask on the show is, is there a character that stuck with you the most? And would you write more about them? I'll leave you with that question. Mm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what, you mean I don't you have know, to answer? <laughs> well, you can answer if you, if you can. But for me, like, I have one character who has stalked me. I feel like it is stalked. It's the right word <laughs> since I was 18. And I, ha I can't get rid of him. That's and interesting. No matter, you know, and I've, I've probably planned out his books but i've never finished them and i know at some point i'm gonna to have to go finish them but there's also this part of me that doesn't want him to go away yeah because he's been with me for so long that. no you've never I mean, had that i've been not not exactly stalked but i wrote one book a few years ago which was about it's unusual for me about a real event which was in the black country which is kind of to the west of birmingham um yeah a lot of towns the west of birmingham there was a, a strike in 1910 which actually achieved the first ever minimum wage in britain yeah, not many people know about it. It was a it was a bunch of very poorly paid chain makers, but because I've also they were helped by a Scot actually called Mary MacArthur who came from Ayr and yeah. Glasgow. Fascinating woman. Look her up. Um, yeah, she is. I yeah. love that story. It's such a good story, and I've just written a whole kind of TV series about it as well. So I'm very in that story and those characters. It's Mary MacArthur, but it's also my characters that I built around the thing. I can't write yeah. more about it because it's kind of the story of that event. But that that's something that's really stayed with me really strongly because it's... No, you know, I it's suppose you could take the characters on their own little journey or ones that have disappeared from fiction and write more about that. I could do, but I don't I don't feel I want to at the moment. You, know, there's, there's you never know when things there. might change, though. You never know. You never know. <laughs> anyway, it's been a massive well, pleasure it has been an absolute... to you. Yeah. It's been a pleasure having you on, and I cannot wait to have you back because I know that book that I've got sitting there is not the last one. It so I will be one. looking forward to the next one, and I'll be looking be forward lovely. to promoting the next one for you. Oh, um, that's so good! This will come out on your release day, so you know that's that's exciting. That's um, lovely. Yeah, you know, and that that's the great thing about this is is you know we get to do these really special one off conversations and. And next time you come back, we'll be diving into, you know, how you've put these books together and, and more about books you're reading and more about you. Um, and I feel like we expand every time we have somebody back, we expand on these conversations. There's and plenty really, more to talk about. <laughs> so, there's always plenty to talk about. I mean, come on, who can't have a cup of tea and a good old chat, you know? It's, good old chat, it's when you love books. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, 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 and that's the camaraderie. work with your writing as well. It sounds like a huge undertaking, but, you know. Every good, time girl. I think about it, I have like a small, tiny panic attack, like, oh, and then I think, why am I panicking? I've been doing this since I was 18. I'll be sure. fine. Well, you've got the backlog to, to go on, haven't you? which I can't claim to have myself. So good for you. I think, I think the backlog is going to be the saving grace for the next three years, because I will be able to work on whatever I want to work on and just hand off stuff as I go. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, and that sounds amazing. I think we're diving into four four genres over the next three years which is huge for me because i've never gone that that extreme before 
Um, so yeah, Marie's Marie's world stories are finally going to get finished. Um, I don't think my co-author is looking forward to that at all. But he, you know, he signed on, so he he's stuck. He has to. <laughs> um, yeah. He wrestles too. He still wrestles. Um, so trying to write around his schedule can be interesting. Usually, I send him a chapter, say, right, I need I need the notes by X date, and you cannot be late, so that I I can keep going. Um, so yeah, we're going from we've only written five, so we have twenty. Six to go. That just blows my mind thinking about it. Plotted it all out. We just got to do it. Totally blows my mind. So you know, I, I'll be well, doing luck. that and releasing well, best others. Of luck. Yeah, and I, I will, I will send you my historical one because I think, I think you'll really attach to the characters, and I think it will. I think you'll love it. I just have okay. that feeling from talking to you okay. that you, you sounds, might enjoy. Sounds it. very good. Yeah. And listen, so, thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. I, I it's been a pleasure, go. everybody. Uh, next week, we've got another best-selling author coming on who's going to be sharing us some especially deep secrets on her work. You're going to want to check this one out. 